0: Hey, just a, a little plug, people move every summer, it's part of, part of life, it's one of the saddest parts of my job, but if you let us know, we will pray for you on, on your last Sunday with us. That sometimes people just kind of slip out and it, it all gets crazy when the move happens, but we do care about what happens next and we want to be a part of, of uh, blessing you through all of that. Uh, the other shout out that I wanted to give is uh, about the Global Leadership Summit, Uh, It's coming up uh, on August 8th and 9th, and the price goes up after June 25th. So you've got about nine days, and then the price goes up uh, further. So if you want to take advantage of that, right now it's $89. The code that you need to register for that price is inside the bulletin. One of the speakers this year is Patrick Lencioni. Some of you may be uh, familiar with him. He writes uh, a number of best-selling books on the New York Times bestseller list, that are related to business and how to make your business climate better, healthier. This one's called The Advantage, why organizational health trumps everything else in business. And I would imagine that's part of what he's gonna talk about this summer. So I wanna give you an urge to do that before the the price jumps. Uh, We've had a whole bunch of people that have signed up over the last 10 days or so. And usually, right around that deadline, that's when a bunch of people make their decision. And I hope that you will too. One other thing I wanted to underscore was the announcement that Amy made. Next Sunday, we're going to meet at what time? 10 o'clock. Okay, 10 o'clock. So we go to our summer schedule. We tried 9 o'clock last year. We heard from the congregation. That didn't work for a lot of people. We went back to 10. Um, If you show up at 11 o'clock, and somebody will, we're going to have a prize for you for for who wasn't listening or or whatever. No, we'll make it fun anyway. But uh, there will be somebody who shows up at 11 and forgot. Uh, but we don't want that to be you. I'm going to ask that we do something different here this morning. We're we're in the third week of this series on uh, Colossians. We're calling it Getting Clear on Jesus. And when we launched this series two weeks ago, I, I I gave out this challenge that for some people where if you've been kicking the tires or you've had doubts, this is a great series for you to, to attach yourself to because there's no greater goal than getting clear about Jesus so that you can have a handle on who he really was and what the New Testament really tells us about him so that you can make honest decisions without pressure, without guilt trips. And if you're a long-time Christian, it's amazing the way doubts sink in, the way habits start to erode, And this is a great series to lock into for the same reason, so that you will grow deeper in your faith and be more clear than ever before about who Jesus is. So this morning, we're coming to one of the most rich and powerful passages in the entire New Testament in terms of what it describes about Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we read this together. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through verse 23. Let's do this together. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and before Him. He is before all things, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant." Please be seated. Pray with me for a moment. God our Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather on this day. We ask for your blessings on the fathers and grandfathers and papas in our life. Thank you for lessons learned. Some of them learned the hard way when we get the meaning of the lesson afterwards. Some of them learned on the prevention end of things. Some lessons through doing and playing and laughing and throwing balls and learning to fix broken things. Lord, we ask that you would make us wise to life. We thank you that there is a Father who is greater than all, who loves us, who welcomes us, who teaches us many lessons, who picks us up when we fall, who restores us when we've walked away, who continues to encourage us and to call to us, who fuels us with a sense of mission and passion, and truth. We thank you that you, our Father God, sent Jesus into the world to show us more of what you are like, your characteristics, your traits, your heart, your passion, your love. We ask that you would equip us through our time here, Sunday after Sunday. We ask that you would prepare us to live out our faith in the midst of a world that is increasingly confused about Jesus, a world that keeps wanting to add to Jesus, thinking they're adding more, and yet often trying to dilute Jesus of the authority and the grandeur and the honor that is truly his. Lord, you know each and every person here. You know our fears, our struggles, our joys. You know the folks that are wrestling with some great decision about life or work or family this week, hoping that you will supply some measure of wisdom. You know those who've walked through a very hard week past and who come in here hurting, needing to be encouraged and built up and strengthened and re-envisioned so that we can go out again into this wonderful but crazy world of ours, representing you, standing in faith, standing in strength, and holding on to hope. Lord, we ask that today, while we're here together, that when we pray to you, you'd really listen. When we confess our sins to you, that you would fully forgive us, that when we place our hopes and our trust in you that you would receive us with open arms that when we call out for help that either by your power or through your children you would put somebody in our path that has the next piece of the puzzle or maybe the whole answer all at once. We ask that you would walk closely with us from the one who's doubting or skeptical, to those of us who've been longtime veterans of this life that we call a walk with Jesus. We know that you never depart from us, even though sometimes we abandon you. But we ask that you would draw us near, and that you would fill us again with hope, love, and an overpowering sense of peace, even in the midst of this storm. So, Lord, we thank you very simply for everything that goes on when your people gather and open your word and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Richard Mao served for some 20 years as the president of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. He retired in 2013. Mao tells of the first time that he and his wife attended the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. There were several dignitaries there, the President of the United States, the Vice President, Secretary of State, several members of Congress. And then as he was describing that event, he wrote these words. I was seated next to a young Muslim, a diplomat from one of the Middle Eastern embassies. In our brief conversation, I asked him how long he had been in Washington. Less than a year was his answer. I asked him what it was like for him to live and work in our nation's capital. He smiled. He said, we're not supposed to say this kind of thing, but this is a wonderful place to be. And then he added a comment gesturing toward the platform where the dignitaries were seated. And he said, Washington is the center of the universe. As Mao wrote these words, he added this thought. He said, There wasn't time to continue the conversation, so I did not have a chance to tell him about my map of the universe. It is described in the first chapter of Colossians. The passage that he cited is the one that we just read and that we're going to look at this morning, which includes these wonderful statements. By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This morning we're in the third part of this summer series that we're calling Getting Clear on Jesus. And I'd like to pick up on Richard Miles' comment and present to you an apostolic map of the universe. I'd like to finish his thought, so to speak, if he could have gone farther with that Muslim uh, member of of the embassy. Here in this letter to the Colossian church, and in the midst of a raging controversy caused by a group of first century Gnostic teachers who thought they were being progressive by teaching some extra non-biblical ideas about Jesus, The Apostle Paul offered the way that the apostles who were commissioned by Jesus viewed Jesus and the world around them. And so I'm borrowing Richard Mao's thought to present to us an apostolic map of the universe. Four pieces to this map. Here's the first part. Jesus is the center point in this way of looking at the universe. Verse 15 begins this way. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The first thing I notice right off the bat is a series of terms that describe Jesus' place in history. First we read that he is the son, and it's always capitalized when it's used speaking of Jesus, meaning he's the son of the very God who created it all. Then we're told that he's also the image. Paul uses a very specific word there. In the, in the Greek language, it's the word icon, and we get our word icon from that. In, in the ancient world, what an icon meant was something that not only had a visible image of the real thing, but that also somehow conveyed the character of the real thing. So he's not saying that Jesus was some kind of a a mere image that was transported and printed out, but that Jesus had the very bearing and character of God that went along with that. He's a true icon of God, the image of God. And then Paul adds a third term that says that He is the firstborn over all creation. That's a term that often has lost significance in our age, but in the ancient world, the firstborn was considered to be of greater respect, greater importance, would be entitled to greater rewards. Often the firstborn son in a family would inherit a greater share of the father's estate or the father's wealth or the father's business. And the firstborn was the one who was often authorized to speak in the Father's name and to do business with his full authority when he invokes that name. So Paul is telling us two things about Jesus, that he's the firstborn of God, that he's, he's the one who speaks in the name of the Father with his full authority, but it also implies that the firstborn isn't the only born that one day all of those who become a part of the family of God, all those who are children of God, follow in his train and are also part of that same family, and one day we will be like Jesus. We will participate in the resurrection from the dead, even though you and I will one day die if Jesus doesn't return first. We will yet live again. And so when I look out at this congregation, I don't see people who have uh, days that are numbered. That's only the physical part of things. They have days that are yet awaiting. And there's so much potential in this room because we don't even, we barely have a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like. Jesus is just the firstborn of something that the rest of us are going to be led into later as time goes by. Now, other New Testament apostles and writers echo some of these thoughts. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read that Jesus is the son who is superior to the angels Again, in the same chapter, we read that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Uh, They could have summed all that up and said he's the icon, he's the image of God, he's the exact representation, not a cheap copy. Peter adds in his little letter of 1 Peter that Jesus is the cornerstone. In other words, everything that God is building is built on Jesus, and especially the church, which is made up of people, it is built on Jesus as the cornerstone of the whole thing. And then John adds this in one of his letters towards the end of the New Testament that Jesus is the word of life. He himself is life-giving to us every time we regard his words. Next, notice how Paul describes something of Jesus' role through the ages. That Jesus takes precedence over everything in creation. It says, in him all things were created. In other words, he was around before the creation and he was instrumental in the creation. Jesus takes precedence over every power, authority, and institution in this world. This is the viewpoint that Paul is writing from. This is the viewpoint of the apostles. This is the viewpoint of the early church, even before the New Testament is put together in the way that we read it. You see, in God's eyes, it's all about Jesus. All things have been created through him and for him. So you might ask where does that perspective come from? How could Paul write such things? Well, it would come from a handful of sources. One, Paul was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures and he knew them well, the the Hebrew scriptures. He knew that all the way back in the very first chapter of the Bible, back in Genesis chapter 1, that we read the first three verses that say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And there in verse 1 we meet God the creator. The very next verse introduces us to the Spirit of God and says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now we find there's one God, but we've discovered two of the persons of this thing that we sometimes call the Godhead. And then in verse 3, it gets even a little bit more complex when Genesis goes on to say, and God said, let there be light. And there was light, and then the creation unfolds. When John wrote his gospel, years later, John opened with these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he inserts a personal pronoun. He says he was with God in the beginning. And he goes on to describe Jesus as the light of the world that was coming into a world that he created and yet the world did not know him and did not understand him. What John is telling us by invoking the language of Genesis in the beginning is that that force of creative power was there in Jesus back when God said, let there be light and there was light and that Jesus was instrumental in the creation of the world. It's why later in chapter 1 of Genesis, we find God speaking with these plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image. Which has caused many people for thousands of years, going way back into Jewish history to say, what on earth is God doing here? What's with the plural pronouns? Who's the us and our? The truth is, the scriptures were embedding clues of what would one day be revealed when the Son of God would come into this world, when Jesus would re- arrive. That we serve one God, but within the unity of who God is, there is yet complexity. And so there are three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who make up this one God. They all share the same essence. When we see one, we see the other. They are so connected. It's a mystery. And yet, the clues are embedded from the opening chapter of the Bible. And Paul would have known all of this. And so Paul is telling us that in Jesus, all things were created. He was there from the very beginning. Here's the concept that Paul is trying to get at in this opening uh, description of Jesus. Jesus is the center point in God's plan through all the ages. He's the center point. I love that name, that concept, center point. About 10 years ago, there was a Baptist church in Concord, New Hampshire that rebranded itself. The church was located across the street from the state house in Concord, the seat of New Hampshire state government. And as they readied for their next move into the future, they were, they were looking for a new pastor and thinking about where things would, would go and where things would turn, they considered a name change. Now think of this, for more than a hundred years, that church had been known as First Baptist Church of Concord. But as I thought about the role that the church had played impacting senators, congressmen, congresswomen, all in a unique way, simply by their location, they decided to rename their church Centerpoint Church. Now there there were two main reasons for the name change. The first was that they were committing to a visionary role at the center point of New Hampshire's future. They had an opportunity at that time to buy land and to expand by moving outside of the city of Concord and to build up a big box church that would be out on the periphery of the city. And they had actually had the land, and they were in the process of raising the money to build the building. As they started to think through, who are we? What's our history? What's our mission? What's our vision in the midst of this world? And as they looked at the unique role that they'd been allowed to have, they chose not to build on that land. And said, we're gonna stay here in the heart of the city because God has given us unique favor through our location in the way that we deal with all of these people who are at the seat of government in New Hampshire. That was the first reason. But the second reason was they wanted to all of those people that they've been in dialogue with to know that Jesus is the center point of who they are in that church and that Jesus is the center point of life, not people in government. Isn't that an awesome mission, an awesome description? Center point church. Now that, that song lives on in some of the uh, that, that thought lives on in some of the songs that we sing around here sometimes. Several years ago, uh, Hill Songs and, and Israel Houghton came up with a, a great song that captured this point. It's called Jesus at the Center. Uh, there's, there's a line in the chorus that goes something like this jesus at the center of it all jesus at the center of it all from beginning to the end it will always be it's always been you jesus jesus and then a little while later the chorus comes back and it changes it just a little bit and it says jesus is the center of my life jesus is the center of my life from beginning to the end it will always be it's always been you Jesus. Jesus. I hope we sing that somewhere in the next couple of weeks and you know bring that back. But the point isn't about me, the point is about Jesus. He's the center point of everything when we understand what the scriptures are telling us. He's our reference point. Here's the second piece of this apostolic map of the universe. Jesus is supreme in every possible way. He is supreme. Verse 17 picks up this thought. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul makes four bold assertions here in these two verses. The first is that Jesus is supreme in that he existed before everything else in creation. That is a bold statement. Here's the second. Jesus is supreme in the way that life on this earth holds together. Without him, it would not. The third is that Jesus is supreme as the head and the leader of the church. He's not just the founder. He's the head of the church. I'm not None of our other pastors are the head of the church. There's not an overseer or an elder who will ever be head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church and we submit to him. We take our directions from him. We need to anchor our decisions in what his word says and the moment that we run beyond that, we've got a club. It's no longer the church. We've got something that we created but it would be very different if we were to leave Jesus behind. And the fourth bold statement is that Jesus is supreme in God's long-range plan for human beings as the firstborn among the dead. Meaning we're destined for resurrection. If you have put your faith in Jesus and and you are lost in the mystery of being in Christ and your your life is wrapped up with him, one day we will live again. One day we will enjoy all the pleasures of whatever eternity has for us that grand picture at the end of Revelation where heaven no longer is a mysterious place up in the clouds, but heaven comes down to earth and God dwells in the midst of his people forevermore and the earth is renewed in all of its splendor and glory and it's gonna be awesome. I don't know about you, but when I travel around every once in a while, I'll go to a different part of the world, and I'll see some really nice spot, and I'll just say, God, when that renewal comes, this would be a really nice spot. If You know, when you're doling out those nice places, uh, this spot on the water in, you know, in Switzerland would be really, really nice. I don't know if you do that, but I do. Why did Paul write these things? Two weeks ago, as we began this series, I explained how the Gnostic teachers were teaching that they had a higher knowledge that was beyond Christian teaching. They taught that the spiritual realm was absolutely pure, but the earth and everything down below was evil and defiled and corrupted. And so they concocted a viewpoint of the world that held that God could not have created the earth, so there must be a whole lot of lower spiritual beings between God and this earth, because God couldn't be so pure and have anything to do with this world. And the next thought was that Jesus couldn't really be God's son, because if Jesus took on human flesh and dwelt here on this world um, among all of us, lowly characters, then it meant that he wasn't pure like God and so the system that they created was that literally there were hundreds of what they called emanations beings that came from God in kind of descending levels and the more pure they were the closer they were to God the more worldly they were the more potentially corrupted that they were and Jesus had to be the lowest of them all so this is the the theory that they invented that there was higher knowledge than Jesus, and there were all these other beings that were actually closer to God than Jesus. So it's okay to start with Jesus, but then we'll teach you about all of these other beings that are greater than Jesus. Sounds seductive, doesn't it? Not to you, I hope. But, but, but it is to many people in our world. You and I live in a day when there are many, many people say, so that's fine, I want a little bit of Jesus too, but, but just in case, there are all these other Ideas and can't we have Jesus and this or Jesus and that? And what they don't realize is every time they add on, they actually take something away from who Jesus was and from the beliefs of the early church and the apostles and those who walked with Jesus when he was on this earth. Louis Giglio is the pastor of Passion City Church in Atlanta. He was also the founder of something called the Passion Movement. It started with a Bible study on the campus of Baylor University with just a handful of students. And after a few years, 10% of the entire student body of Baylor were involved in these Bible studies that he started. That led to putting together some weekend conferences where there were many, many college students from universities. Thousands of people would gather for these passion events. And they had worship teams and they had uh, national caliber teaching that was a part of all of this. A few years ago, at the end of one of the Passion events, Louis had a conversation with a molecular biologist who came to speak with him when he was done. And when Louis, when Louis told him that he was going to be speaking in his home church on this passage in Colossians 1 in Atlanta the next week, the molecular biologist said, you've got to Google something before you finish your message. He said, okay, what's that? He said, you've got to Google laminin. He said, well, what's laminin? I don't know what that's about. And he went on to describe that we have something inside of every protein cell, in every molecule of your body, or every cell of your body. There's a protein molecule that has this substance called laminin within it, and it it has these arms that allow these molecules to attach to other things. Very simply, it provides the glue or the cement, so that, so to speak, within your body. Without these molecules. Organs could not attach to other functions in your body, and everything would kind of be a, a mess. We, we're, we absolutely depend on this substance called laminin. So this molecular biologist told Louis that as he was writing the message in Colossians, he needed to Google laminin. And Louis didn't understand why he needed to do that until he Googled it, and this is what came up. This is part of the scientific DNA helix that always comes up in the shape of a T, or a cross, and there are three uh, cords, so to speak, that are, there are three strands that are embedded in that cross. Go ahead and look it up this afternoon. Here's what laminin looks like on a slide in a microscope. You see what I see in there? there there's a cross, it's kind of bent shape. Now, the question is what do we do with this? Some Christians took this concept too far and it became very popular for a period of time and they began claiming that laminin is the biological proof that God exists, that it's within the human body, within every cell of your body. But that's probably an overreaction. There were some others who began to react to the overreaction and they've written articles trying to debunk the importance of laminin. For instance, if you look look it up on Snopes, uh, their conclusion is this is not so significant. It's not a really big deal. Somebody else who's here who's more scientific could probably explain it in a way better than I can. But I'd like to suggest this. Rather than ignoring it or overblowing it or saying that all of our faith is dependent upon it, what if we treated Lamanin as a grand what if? What if God just planted a reminder within our human molecular biology, that Jesus really is the substance that holds the entire world together and that holds your body together too. Wouldn't that be like God? Just wondering. I don't know. I'm not going to die on that hill. But I find it fascinating that those cells are in your body and my body and inside the body of every single human being who is walking on this planet. So, we're developing this apostolic map. The first part is that Jesus is the center point. The second is that no matter where we go, Jesus is supreme. Here's the third feature it's that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Now, I know that if you were here two weeks ago, you heard me teach on this principle that Jesus is enough. This is one of the sub themes running all the way through the letter to the Colossian church. And some of you are going to get so sick of hearing me say that Jesus is enough that just about the time that you're sick of it, I'll know I've accomplished the point that I'm trying to get across. Because the time when you need to really know that Jesus is enough is when you're in trouble. When you're down, when you're stressed, when every other support in your life get kicked, gets kicked out from underneath you, that's when this needs to be ingrained in you. I can reach for Jesus because Jesus is enough. And it begs the question, will Jesus be enough when you don't get the job that you really want? Will Jesus be enough when somebody who really matters to you dies and you're hurting? Can you hold on? Will Jesus be enough When your support system betrays you at some point in life, can you stand with Jesus? Do you really have a handle on him in such a way that your faith is not at risk when the disappointments that are common to life hit and hit hard? And I've got news for you. Not one of us is gonna be exempted from the disappointments in life. Jesus said it best, John 16, 33. In this life you will have trouble, tribulation, but behold... I've overcome the world. That's why we lean on Jesus. So verse 19 picks up this thought. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. Is that the way you read it? Anybody pick up what I just did there? <laughs> I left out a word deliberately. It doesn't say that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. It says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's really important. We're gonna come back to that and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is enough because all the fullness of God dwells in him. The words that Paul chooses here are letting us know that Jesus isn't just a little bit like God. In fact, Paul uses very specific language to tell us that all of God's fullness dwells in Jesus. He is fully divine in every way, despite the fact that he came into the world as an infant and that he grew up into a human being who might have looked very much like every one of us here. Paul uses a Greek word, and I rarely quote Greek words here, but I'm going to this time because it's important. It's the word pleroma. Can you say that with me? Pleroma. And it means fullness. And Paul reinforces it with that word all. So it's saying not just some of the fullness, all of the fullness of God, the Father, dwells in Jesus. Why did he do that? The Gnostic teachers used this word pleroma as well. And they used it to refer to all of the spiritual emanations that they had envisioned who were between Jesus as the lowest of them all and God who's so perfectly pure that he's unknowable and unreachable by us. And they called those the pleroma, the pleroma of entities, the pleroma of spirits that you might engage. And so Paul is making a point to counter that and he's saying all of the fullness Dwells in Jesus. It lives in Jesus. It resides in Jesus. It stays there forevermore, which basically means you don't need what they're selling. They have nothing to offer to you because they're wrong about Jesus, because all of God's fullness is in Jesus. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to reconcile us to God. Jesus came to show real people in this world how they become reconciled to God. I don't know about you, but I keep finding people that I talk to who have this profound sense of being alienated from God. So much so that they are afraid to talk with somebody who claims to know Jesus, so much so that they become afraid to step inside a church thinking something bad will happen to them. That's how strong this powerful sense of alienation becomes. And too often, some Christians confuse their role and think that their role is to judge the world and the people in the world, despite the fact that Jesus clearly said that he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Please, please, please hear me on this. There is a role for apologetics. There's a role for truth claims, there's a role for gently calling somebody out and trying to reinstruct them and bring them back into a safer pathway. But there are too many Christians in our day who are giving the church a bad name and our faith a bad name in the ears of non-Christians by being judgmental toward the world. When Jesus himself reserved the harshest criticism for people who claim to know it all by judging. And you know what we call those people? Pharisees. Who here has a spiritual ambition to be a Pharisee? Anybody? But you know what the reality is? The more that we become judgmental of the world, we become more like the Pharisees whom Jesus criticized heavily and less like Jesus. And that temptation is always there. And we always need to choose the way of Jesus. And you are never going to get this right, and I'm never going to get this fully right, but we need to do our best to head in that direction. Because when people hear us judging the world, they stop listening, and they do not hear the offer of grace. Does that make sense to you? It's a hard balance to walk, but we have to find that balance beam. And we have to do that within our age. And Jesus came to reconcile people to God. That is great news. Jesus didn't whitewash everything. People flocked to hear Jesus, knowing that he would call out their sins, while they also knew that he would also call out those who appeared to be the most righteous and the most powerful as well. And one of the reasons that he came was not because he gave them spiritual candy, but because he gave them even handed love and truth in a very, very powerful mix. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is enough because of the victory on the cross. People often want to avoid talking about the cross. But the cross was where Jesus did his most efficacious work on our behalf. By dying in our place, Jesus accomplished all in one shot redemption, forgiveness, and the possibility of peace with God. As the one-of-a-kind Son of God, Jesus is supreme. That's what Paul is telling us. He's the center point in God's story, in God's work, and in God's good news to the entire world. And so it is that John tells us that Jesus is the light of the world and the world was created by him. And Paul tells us that he's before all things and all things hold together in him, that he is the firstborn among many others who will share this eternal life with him. And he is the head of the church. Like everything else, it is for him. And then there's one last piece to this apostolic map of the universe. This gospel changes lives. This gospel, this good news changes lives. Look at what he says here in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now... I love it when Paul does that. It's one of his great strokes of genius, and there are several but nows in his letters where he contrasts two great things. You are alienated from God, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Oh, how we long to live there. We were free from accusation without blemish. That's his goal. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. In the first week of this series, we saw how Paul mentions this concept of the true message of the gospel, and now he brings this concept back again. Twice in this paragraph, he mentions that word gospel. You know what's powerful about that? Most people in that day had not read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John hadn't even been written yet. It's probably somewhere around the same time that uh, Matthew and Luke are, are, are writing as they're realizing that that first century group is dying off, and so they begin to pen their memories and their records of Jesus. The gospel existed before the written gospels. Does that make sense to you? The gospel was the word proclaimed by people who walked with Jesus and spread the good news long before it was put in print, which begins to happen about 30 years, 25 to 30 years, after Jesus had left this earth and finished his mission. Paul's letters, some of them were written before the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but as the gospel message was changing lives of people, all around the known world at that time and he's using that concept to say this is the true gospel this is the gospel that that ties us to the earliest Christians this is the gospel that ties us to Jesus when the New Testament records came they're of great benefit for us they're inspired they're, they're powerful they're authoritative all that stuff but the good news was spreading even without the written word and this gospel is that Jesus is at the center of everything that God is doing and Jesus reconciles us to God one person at a time. And Jesus did this so that we would understand that he is the bridge to God and that he is enough. I love how Cory Ten Boom once said Corey Ten Boom who was a Holocaust survivor. She went to one of the death camps to Ravensbrück. She and her sister had been caught hiding Jews in their home in Holland, and they spent the rest of the the war. She spent the rest of the war in that prison camp. Her sister died there. Her father died on the way there. It was awful. But she had this tremendous insight in her books, and one of her statements is, you might never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Isn't that powerful? You might never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Here's our big idea for this morning that I've been trying to work through this message. When the Jesus of the cross is at the center of our lives, we can live with the confidence that Jesus is enough. In other words, the more and more you put Jesus at the center of your life and your orientation and the way that you look at life and the world and everything around it, and he's at the center point, the more you will grow in confidence that he is really enough. I'd like to conclude with a story that I think is something of a modern legend. I tried to find if there was a source that this could be tied to in an author, and it it doesn't appear that way, so I'm going to attribute to this to that most prolific author that we know of as Anonymous. Years ago, there was a very wealthy man who, along with his devoted son shared a passion for collecting art. Together they traveled the world, adding only the finest treasures to their collection. Priceless work. Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, and many others. And these works of art began to adorn the halls and the walls of their family estate. This widowed father looked on with great satisfaction as his only child, his son, became an experienced collector of art, sharing the passion and the eye for value that his father had. But the day came when the country was engulfed in a war and that young man left like many others to serve his country. After only being at war for a short time, the father received a telegram from the army. The telegram informed him that his beloved son had been killed while carrying a fellow soldier to a medic. Later that year on Christmas morning, a knock came at the door of the old man's house and He opened the door to find a soldier who was carrying a large package in his hand. The man introduced himself to the old man by saying, I was a friend of your son. And then he added, I was the one he was carrying on the day he was killed. The soldier continued, may I come in for a few moments? I have something to show you. I'm an artist and I want to give you this gift. As the old man unwrapped the package, the torn wrapping paper revealed a portrait. Not just any portrait, but a portrait of his son. Although art critics never would regard this as a masterpiece, the painting did capture the young man's face in striking detail and seemed to capture something of his personality as well. The following spring, the old man became ill and soon passed away. The art world was in anticipation when it was announced that there would be an auction of this vast private art collection that the two of them had gathered. And according to the old man's will all of the artworks were to be auctioned the day of the auction soon arrived and there was great anticipation as collectors from all the, around the world gathered to see this private collection and hopefully to bid on pieces and be able to buy them much to the surprise of the collectors who came to bid the auction began with a painting they were unfamiliar with a painting that was not on any of the ones listed on the museum's list it was that painting of the old man's son that the soldier had brought that day. And the auctioneer called for an opening bid. And the room was silent. Nobody was bidding. So he called out, who will open the bidding with $100? Again, minutes passed by with not a sound from those who had come to buy. After a while, from the back of the room, someone callously called out, who cares about that painting? It's just a picture of his son. Forget it and go on to the important works of art. And then there are other voices who chimed in on that same theme. But the auctioneer replied, no, we have to sell this one first. Now who will take the son? Finally, an older man in the back of the room stood up and he said, I knew the boy. I'd like to have it. I'll bid $100. The auctioneer called out, I have a bid for $100. Will anyone go higher? Again. Stone cold silence. So after that long silence, the auctioneer finally said, Going once, going twice, gone. And he, he banged the gavel, sold. Cheers filled the room, and someone was heard to say, Now we can get on with it. But the auctioneer looked at the audience and announced that the auction was over. He was met with stunned disbelief that quieted the room. Someone spoke up and said, What do you mean it's over? We we didn't come here for a picture of some old guy's son. What about all these painters? There's millions of dollars of artwork in this room. The auctioneer very calmly replied, It's very simple. According to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son receives everything. And that is the point of this morning's message. Whoever takes the Son gets everything, and Jesus is enough. Jesus is everything. Let's pray. God, thank you for this wonderful Father's Day, but thank you even more that we serve a Father who loved us so much, that he was not willing for us to go through life without having a very clear picture of who you are. And we see that picture most clearly in Jesus the exact representation of your being the image of the invisible God and Lord I pray that either today or as we continue on our study of this letter that you'll give us great clarity into understanding once and for all and forever that Jesus is enough so God, hear the person who may be saying, I know this is true, but I've wandered from it. I tried to fill the hole in my life with other things. And Lord, I've, I've come to this reawakening that Jesus is enough. Fill me with the knowledge of Jesus, with an understanding of Jesus, with the ever so close presence of Jesus, and renew my faith and my life with you. Lord, hear the person who may be saying, I've known this decision was coming and I put it off. I've been cynical or I've been skeptical or I've been filled with doubts. But I know that I've heard truth here from the word of God from this ancient letter from Paul. And I need to find out if Jesus is enough for me. So here I come, doubts and all. I'm getting out of the business of trying to be religious enough by my own strength. And I'm going to trust that Jesus is the one that you sent, that he is enough. And what you want me to do is begin to do life with him. So God, here I come, doubts and all, taking my first baby steps today. Keep me on the path. Keep me growing. And God, here the long-time veteran Christ follower who may be saying, Lord, these words are music to my soul. Don't ever let me wander. Don't ever let me stray. Take me deeper and deeper into my understanding of Jesus so that when my day of testing comes, when the storm seems like it's really bad, that I will be able to say with Corey Ten Boom and with some of the great heroes of faith that have come before us, Jesus is enough. He's still enough. He'll always be enough. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.